right. So um, we have a lot to cover, okay? Um, to, as you know, I like to start off with a review. This whole series is called A Life Lived for God. This is a study through the book of Joshua. And last week we had a message which was called The Impossible made possible. And in that message, what we did was we talked about, we were actually revisiting that conflict that was taking place between the Israelite army and the five Amorite armies as well. And what we saw in that clash that was taking place outside of Gibeon was the fact that God got involved. And what he did was he, the Bible says he discomfited them. He basically, he freaked out the Amorites. They got scared. They got worried. They got, they got, uh, displaced and they started running. And instead of this being a fight, this actually became a, a matter of chase and what we saw was the fact that Joshua did not want to lose sight of the enemies as they were running away. So what he did was he asked God to do something miraculous. He asked him to extend the sunlight of the day because he wanted to make certain that none of them slipped away. And what we saw was the fact that God actually did that. God literally took a day and made it like two days, literally joined together. And what we saw was just the incredible, um, the miraculous uh, that took place. What was cool about it is last week, we, last week what we did was we kind of looked at how Joshua asked. We looked at the components of the way he asked. The first thing we noticed was the fact of his boldness of his request. We noticed that when he asked God to do the impossible, he didn't do it in a whispered tone under his breath. He did it openly. He did it boldly. He did it with confidence because Joshua knew and had no doubt of God's ability to do what he was asking him to do. Joshua had seen the track record of God, and he was like, man, I know he can do this. And the other thing we realized is the fact that not only did he believe that God could do it, but also he knew that what he was asking for was in alignment with God's will. It was about accomplishing what God had asked him to do. And we compared the example of that aspect of what Joshua showed us. We compared that the way Jesus was talking and teaching us about impossible prayers. And what we found was they had the same components. It was a matter of absolute faith in God, unwavering faith in his ability to accomplish what it is we were asking, and also at the same time making certain that what we were asking was according to God's will. So we saw the boldness of his request. Then we noticed the subject of his request. And what was cool about it was he noticed that he, remember, he talked about the sun and the moon, and he told them to stand still. He's like, man, God, do this. And what we realized, the fact that he wasn't focused on his circumstances, he wasn't focused on what he could see with his eyes. He was looking beyond what he could see, and he was talking to the force that has power over the circumstance. And this is what we talked about. He had a, a heavenly perspective. And we talked about the fact that this is the way we're supposed to be. This is a perspective we're supposed to have on life. We're not supposed to live our lives based upon what we see, but based upon what we know from God's word. And what happens many times is it's easy to say to walk by faith and not by sight, but it's very hard to do that. Very difficult because what happens, what we see has a tendency to overwhelm us. It gets in our thoughts. It gets in our minds. Who's ever laid in bed and thought about your circumstances and it kept you awake? Oh, my goodness gracious. All the time. We're like, oh, freaked out by it, right? Sometimes, I mean, and it, it really can be a, a besetting thing in our life. And what we follow, saw was the fact that Joshua was willing uh, to literally not only understand um, that God could do the impossible, but he knew the fact that he was asking God, um, the God of the universe, he was speaking to him. He was dealing with one who is sovereign, who had control over circumstances, no matter how daunting they may seem. So then we thought about the fact that as you and I are dealing with our challenges, it's a matter of constantly refining our perspective on our life that we look. We look at our life every single day. And if we're not careful to change and shift our perspective to look beyond what we see, we can easily get bogged down. Then we saw not only the boldness and not only the perspective that he had, but we looked at the results of his request. And it was here that we considered the fact that, man, what happened, this supernatural occurrence that was absolutely crazy 
where God brought to bear his power through his servants, literally doing the impossible. What we realize is the fact that it, it put the spotlight on God's sovereignty, God's power to do what he wants when he wants. The fact that God's not limited by the reality that we live in. We're stuck in this reality. We follow the rules, the dynamics of the laws of physics, but God's like, no, 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 no. That doesn't apply to me. I'll do what I want when I want. And you know what? That's exactly what he did. He did the impossible. And what recognizing the sovereignty of God, what we had to realize is the fact that, and when we apply it to ourselves, is guess what? The same sovereignty that existed then, guess what? It exists now. He's just as sovereign today as he was then. So then, understanding that, what we thought was, well, okay. So the issue is not God's ability to do the impossible, the limiting factor in God doing the impossible in our lives is not God. It's in fact us, right? Many times we are the problem. But understanding that universal truth, what we did was we started to realize the fact that this, now today what we're going to do is we're going to carry on in the battle. We're going to look at what's kind of going on and some dynamics that are taking place. But what we'll see is Joshua's going to take advantage of that miraculous gift that God's given because recognize the sunlight is still continuing as we pick back up here. But we'll see is he's going to not only deal with defeating the Amorites completely, he's also going to deal with the authority structure, the influence that's pushing them. And we look at our message this morning. It's going to be called Shutting Up the Naysayers. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for today, for the love that you have for this people, uh, Lord, your people. God, I know, uh, Lord, that you've spoken to me. I have prayed. I have studied. Uh, Lord, but I'm asking you, Father, please, 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 please. Uh, Lord, I pray asking now that you'd speak through me, Lord, that I would not be a hindrance to the message, Father, that you would give us exactly what we need. Lord, we are a hurting, broken people. Uh, Lord, we're a needy people. And Father, we know that what we need is you. And Lord, I pray that today, God, that I would not in any way adulterate your message. I pray that, Father, you'd help me uh, to eliminate the human element, that your truth might speak to our hearts. Lord, give us what we need. I beg you in Jesus' name. Amen. Joshua 10, verses 15 through 21. Six verses, huh? Right on. All right. And Joshua returned and all Israel with him unto the camp to Gilgal. But these five kings fled and hid themselves in a cave at Bacchadah. And it was told Joshua, saying, The five kings are hid found in a, in a cave in Nakadah. And Joshua said, Roll great stones upon the mouth of the cave and set men by it for to keep them. And stay ye not, but pursue after your enemies and smite the hindmost of them. Suffer them not to enter into their cities, for the Lord your God hath delivered them into your hand. And it came to pass when Joshua and the children of Israel had made an end of slaying them with a very great slaughter till they were consumed, that the rest which remained of them entered into the entered into fenced cities. And all the people returned to the camp to Joshua at Macedon in peace. None moved his tongue against any of the children of Israel. And so at this main point, at this, at this point in time, the main conflict is actually kind of coming wrapping up. The Amorites and the Israelites have been battling, and what we're finding is as things are winding down. This is a battlefield that has stretched literally from Gibeon all the way to Makedah, which means we've gone literally across Canaan. This is going west over to the coastline, to the Mediterranean Sea. And what we find is these five kings have hid themselves in this in this cave. Now, Makedah is a city uh, that is west of Gibeon, as I said, uh, but it's going to be this morning. What I want us to do is examine how Joshua literally um, is going to faithfully deal with every remaining uh, Amorite, but also how he's going to really address these five kings. And there's a really amazing picture that we're going to witness in this. So in doing so, what we're going to do is compare how he deals with those issues and how we should deal with the remaining threats in our lives. Now, this is threats that are external, these are threats that can be individuals. These can also be threats that are 
just besetting sins that are unloved, things that are our own personal weaknesses. But no matter what they are, they must be dealt with. So as we look at what Joshua models for us, the first thing we notice is the fact that he says this, that he does this, he makes sure that none of them are overlooked. Verse 15 through 17 says this, And Joshua returned, and all Israel with him, unto the camp to Gilgal. But these five kings fled and hid themselves in a cave at Machedah. And it was told Joshua, saying, The five kings are found hid in a cave at Machedah. So the, what we see is here, taking advantage of the sunlight that is still shining, Joshua is able to keep track of all of the individual enemies. They're chasing them great distances. So understand, these guys would have been spreading out. They would have been scattering, because remember, they're running for their lives. And what's happened is they are going to fulfill the task that God's given them. Because recognize what we're going to see is this is literally a turning point as we study the book of Joshua. This is going to be a turning point in the battles. What we're going to find is the fact that this is where things start to really, really turn. And what you're going to see is there's a southern campaign. The southern campaign is going to be a list of city after city after city after city after city where Joshua is going to be. They're just going to roll through the, through, their, through every opposition. But this is a turning point when this will start to happen. It's going to actually, verse number 23 in Joshua chapter 10 will be the final, the close of that southern campaign. So as the Amorite soldiers are falling before them and their kings, what's interesting is they have remarkably avoided being killed. Hmm. Right? Now they're found hidden in cave like a scared children hiding in the dark. Now what does this tell us about them? It tells us that they were not on the front lines. They probably did not even have swords in their hands. But what's happening, by staying in the rear, what they're doing is they're protecting themselves. They're willing to risk others, but not risk themselves. Yeah. A picture of the cowardice that exists in wicked leaders. Right? They have no problem risking the lives of other people. Just don't risk themselves. Right? Who's ever had a boss who has no problem with you doing something really gross? You get down and clean that up, would you? And you're like... What? Did that did? Uh, uh, no problem with doing that. No problem with you staying late. No problem with you coming in early. But they're not showing up early. They're not showing up late. They're not risking themselves. And what you'll find here is the fact that this is a this is a portrait of really the cowardice that exists, unfortunately, in wickedness. What we're going to find is the fact when it comes to wickedness, when it comes to things that are ungodly, they're selfish. Okay. What you'll find is the trait that always goes along with wickedness is selfishness. When you and I fall prey to our sin, are we not becoming selfish? Yeah. Right? The more selfish we become, the more sinful we become. But then we compare that to righteousness. And the more righteous we are, the more selfless we are. So when we're selfish, we're heading towards sin. And when we're righteous, we are becoming, or when we're selfless, we're becoming more righteous. It is a picture of Christ. Listen, when Paul addresses the issue of the way he's doing what he's doing, again, 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 3, Paul goes through a laundry list of stuff. He says, man, if I, if I speak with tongues of angels and, and you know, I have this eloquent speech, and he said, but if I have not charity, it is just tinkling brass and sounding cymbals. He says, listen, it's just noise. Literally, no matter how eloquently I speak, it's just noise. Then he says, man, if I, were, if I had faith that, that I could do these amazing things, I could cast a, a, a mountain in the sea, if I could do this great faith, but I have not charity, it is nothing. Okay? Then he goes, well, you know, even if I gave all, the, my, all my goods to the poor and I gave my body to be burned, but if I have not charity, it is nothing. And so what happens, he's saying, listen, if I do these things from selfish purposes, God's going to see them as wickedness. But if I'll do them selflessly for God's glory, because charity is the love of God manifested through humanity. It's when we're, it's not about us, right? When we do something kind for somebody, we're like, ka-ching, hey, check it out. 
That's not selfless. People might look at it online and go, man, look at that person. They're awesome. But what are we doing? We're just trying to build our, our, our social bank. But man, when we do what's right just because it's what's right, man, there's the beautiful thing. So we look at this aspect of this selfishness that's, that's in wickedness. Think about satanic religions, right? When I say satanic religions, I'm not talking about people going to a, a satanistic, uh, whatever you call it, ritual. ritual. No, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about churches that will use Jesus' name that unfortunately are not really following the word of God. And so when I say satanic, what I mean is there's an influence in there that's to draw people away from, away from the truth. And so in all these people, when Jesus addresses it in Matthew 7, he says, and then he says, you know, many will come to me on that day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in thy name? And in thy name do many wonderful works. And he'll say, away from me, never. I said, away from me, for I never knew you, workers of iniquity. So their righteous works, their godly works in Jesus' name are actually called wickedness by God. So when I mention this, what I'm talking about is the fact that, guess what? There's a selfish component. If, listen, it's salvation plus this, it's Jesus plus this, I've got to do this, I've got to maintain my salvation, guess what? That's satanic. Because guess what? Is it saying? Is you know what it's telling you? It's saying you're important. But what does Jesus say? I am the way and the truth and life, and no man come to the Father but by me. Amen. For by grace you are saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. He says, let me just qualify. You don't bring anything to the party but sin. Amen. That's your contribution. <laughs> Guess what? All the righteousness is going to come from me, right? And that's the key. So when we think about these religions, what happens? There's a component that's selfish. It's going to be our religious works. It's going to be our attitude. It's going to be our piety. It's going to be our sacrifice. We're saving ourselves in part through our righteousness. And yet, what does God tell us about our righteousness? Filthy rags. What does he say in Romans 3.10? He says, he says, as it is written, there is none righteous. Notice the qualifying part. No, not one. Just in case you thought there might be one. <laughs> He's going, there ain't one. Nobody made the, butt, made the cut. And so we have that clarified. He's like, that's, that's who we are. So in comparison, if we compare that mindset of thinking that the righteousness is from us, listen, because Christ knew that there was no hope for us. We were irredeemable. There's nothing we could do. No one can keep the law. Driven by love, what does he do? He selflessly gave his life, right? To pay the debt that we could not pay. To redeem us from the damnation that we had earned from the life that we have lived. Notice what it says in Titus 3, verses 5 through 7. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by His grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It's not us. Like I said, we bring nothing to the party but sin. So what we see in these cowardice kings is the cowardice of our enemy. Recognize the fact that, listen, Satan and his minions hide in the shadows. They hide in the shadows. And what do they do? They whisper discouraging words to people that are spiritually weary. They look for the weak. And they try to find ways to prey upon them. They take pot shots out of the darkness at the very children of God who are trying to serve the Lord, looking for chinks in the armor, trying to find a way to knock us, knock us down. And what we'll find is the fact that, listen, he's bold in the darkness. Oh, but he's fearful in the light. That's always true. Recognize the fact that, listen, sinfulness and wickedness thrive in darkness. Right? What does the Bible say? In John, Jesus says this in John 3, verses 19 through 21. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world. 
And men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. When he says light has come into the world, guess who he's talking about? Himself. He's saying the light of the world is here. And through my presence, guess what? Men are not going to like it. When Jesus speaks to the, to the apostles, he says, listen, they hate you because guess what? They first hated me. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that goeth true, but he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. This is why God calls us and tells us that we're supposed to be a light. We talked about the sun and the moon last week. That picture of the sun being the light of God and the moon being a dead rock. But guess what it does? It reflects in the night, in the darkness. And so the spiritual night that rests upon the earth right now, as the light of God shines, you and I are here as representatives. That's what it said in Philippians 2.15, which I could not find last week that saved my life, but we got it now. <laughs> that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. So you're in the midst of the darkness, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Here's the picture, right? The sun and the moon. And what happens, here's the sun, which is the source of the light. And if you and I are going to shine the light of God to this world, guess what? We've got to have a clear source to the light. And what happens when the world works its way between the sun and the moon? You get an eclipse. The more the world that gets in the way, the less light shines. And that's true in our lives. The more the world gets between us and God, the less light shines shines. So we've got to be conscious of this. So here we look at this and understand. So as we're doing that, when we are reflecting the light and we are doing exactly what God's told us to, it's because we're living for him in that moment. We're not living for ourselves. When we live for ourselves, guess what? We fall into darkness. We live for him. We become light. So we're submitted, submitted to God. And then what does the Bible tell us what happens when we submit to God? James 4, 7. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil. And he will flee from you. Okay, so now our mighty and powerful enemy flees in fear back to the shadows, defeated through the God's power and authority, not ours. And as the light of the sun burns for Joshua and his men, these wicked leaders are cowering in the shadows. And because the Israelites took them seriously, and because they didn't disregard them, because they said, look, they're just, they're just five guys hiding in a cave. They didn't disregard the threat that they posed. They made sure to know exactly where they where they were. In the heat of battle, they knew exactly where these men were. And so as enemies that are out there, listen, our enemies, God's enemies, listen, can I tell you, they are internal or internal. They are patient. If we don't deal with them, guess what? They will show up again. How many of you have ever tried to ignore something in your life? Uh, maybe an issue or a, a struggle. So I'm just going to, I'm just going to, I'm not going to pay attention to it. I'm not going to pay attention to it. But it's a weakness in our walk with God. And eventually, what does it do? Shows up. It shows up in that moment when we just say, you know, in the moment that we drop our guard, when we're not paying attention, when we're not looking, that weakness can arrive. And understanding that, listen, cannot give it a chance to survive. It's got to be addressed. It's got to be dealt with. And it's waiting in the shadows to affect us and to hurt us. That's why when they see them, they, even though they seem powerless, these cowering kings are recognized as a threat to Joshua and the people. And so they, re they remain watchful and attentive. The Bible tells us in 1 Peter 5, 8, right, to be sober, to be vigilant, because we do have an enemy that's trying to, trying to find a way to hurt us. For every, we're, we're conscious and we're looking for every potential threat, seen and unseen. And so Joshua and the Israelites are being careful to take every threat seriously. 
But, none, but not only have they made sure that none of them over, are overlooked, but they will also make sure that their influence is cut off. Notice verses 18 and 19. And Joshua said, Roll great stones upon the mouth of the cave, and set men by it for to keep them. And stay ye not, but pursue after your enemies, and smite the hindmost of them. Suffer them not to enter into their cities, for the Lord your God hath delivered them into your hand. Revealing Joshua's recognition of the danger these kings pose, he has them shut up in a cave. Now, interestingly enough, when you look at verse number 18, notice the wording that's used. He says, roll great stones in front of the cave. Now, when we think back to when the Lord was raining down giant boulders upon the earth, do you know how he described them in Joshua 10, 11? And it came to pass as they fled from before Israel and were in the going down to, Heth- to Beth Horon, that the Lord cast down great stones from heaven upon them unto Azekah, and they died. And there are more which died with the hailstones than they whom the children of Israel slew with the sword. So is it possible that these kings are literally being shut up and trapped by these heavenly stones that were literally rained down by God upon the earth? It certainly seems possible because consider the fact that verse 11 tells us that there were more killed by them than by swords, meaning that, listen, these things could be all over the place. They would be easily and readily available. And so that, that, so, and if that's true, then the very things that are restraining and confining these wicked kings and their influences are these stones, these physical manifestations of God's power on earth. As Joshua, who is a picture of Christ, is using God's power to restrain wickedness and confine it to darkness while God's glorious light shines on the battlefield. Now recognize, what I want us to do now is consider the twofold reason why he did what he did. First, we see that he did, he did it to isolate these kings. Verse 18 says this, And Joshua said, Roll great stones upon the mouth of the cave, and set men by it for to keep them. So Joshua says it's to keep them. To keep them. So Joshua is both making certain that these five kings don't escape, but there's also something else that he's doing. He's cutting off their influence over their men. By trapping them, by eliminating their connection, they're literally losing their thrones of power. They're out of their reach. So because Joshua recognized the fact that, listen, many times when men are fighting, they need someone to follow. And when that, when that leader is no longer available, what will happen is many men will have their will to fight will fall away. An example of that would be in the book of 1 Samuel 17, verses 48 through 51. Consider how the Philistines, the Philistine army who stood boldly clanging their armor, ready to, I mean, the the, the Israelites were scared to death facing this army. And they sent out Goliath, their great champion. And upon his fall, they crumbled. Listen, 1 Samuel 17, verses 48 through 51. And it came to pass, and the Philistines arose, and came and drew nigh to meet David, that David hasted and ran toward the army to meet the Philistines. Imagine that. This young man, maybe a teenager, is literally running out to meet thousands of soldiers that everyone else has been scared of. He's running to meet them. And David put his hand in his bag and took thence a stone and slung it and smote the Philistine in his forehead. And the stone sunk into his forehead and he fell upon his face to the earth. So David prevailed over the Philistine and with a sling and with a stone and smote the Philistine and slew him. But there was no sword in the hand of David. Therefore David ran and stood upon the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of the sheath thereof and slew him and cut off his head therewith. And when the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled. They ran. 
They lost their will to fight. And can you imagine the chaos that would going through the minds of these men as they're watching their numbers dwindle and they're looking for their leadership and they do not see them? They're on their own. They find themselves freaked out in this moment. Not to mention the impact that this isolation would have on the kings themselves. Consider the fact that they have stripped of their defenses. They are trapped by their enemy. The confidence and the bluster that they had. Because remember what it said, that they showed at Gibeon ready to make war. We're here to take care of this place. Well, all that boldness and all that mm, bluster, I would imagine it's gone at this point. As they hide in the darkness, huddling with one another. So not only have the soldiers lost their confidence, but so have their leaders. And now, as they're being held back, they're being constrained by the power of God. And see, listen, when you and I allow God's power to constrain the influences on our flesh, think about this. God can do work in our lives and deal with issues of sin in our lives that we cannot. He can help us overcome things that we cannot overcome. We just do not have it in us. We rob them of their influence. So if we picture these kings, and we just thought about it, if we applied it to us, and we were just going to name them, we were going to give them some kind of a representation in our life, I thought about five different things that I thought would pretty much cover the gambit. And I listed these. Lust, greed, hatred, selfishness, and jealousy. Lust, greed, hatred, selfishness, and jealousy. And if not constrained by the power of God, guess what? They will bring destruction into our lives and into the lives of the people that we love. And so what does God tell us to do with these things, these influences in our heart, these things that speak to us? The Bible tells us to try the spirits, whether they be of God, right? Recognize the voices that are being whispered in your heart. Recognize if it's God. Guess what? God does not have a voice of condemnation. God is going to exhort you to be more. He'll bring conviction, certainly, but He does not condemn. But notice what we're told to do in 2 Corinthians 10.5. Recognizing these thrones, right? God tells us, how do we deal with these, these kings that sit on the thrones of our heart? Casting down imaginations and every high thing. That almost sounds like a king that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Bring it into captivity. Do you hear that? And here Jesus or Joshua, a picture of Christ, is, is taking them and holding these things captive. The influence over the men, the influence over their enemy. Constrain and isolate them and their influence by shutting them up through the power of God. But then... We also see that he shuts them up and does this and traps them to weaken their forces. Verse 19, check this out. He says, And stay ye not, but pursue after your enemies, and smite the hindmost of them. Suffer them not to enter into their cities, for the Lord your God hath delivered them into your hand. So Joshua tells his leadership not to get distracted. Don't lose sight of what you're here to do. Stay on task. This is an important point. Because so it is certainly a grand moment. It is certainly a step in the right direction to have these kings cornered, right? They've got them stuck in a place where they can't escape. This is not the final victory. And what he's warning them is, listen, God is simply saying, listen, you must utterly destroy them. That's what I've called you to do. So don't get satisfied in this moment because your current target is to wipe out all of the enemies. And what's going to happen is if you stop and celebrate here, this capture of these kings, you know what's going to happen? While you're celebrating that, those guys that are out there are going to be escaping. 
They're going to be slipping away, and they're going to be drifting off to come fight another day. And when we stop and listen, because listen, I'm telling you, we're all guilty of doing this. God brings a little victory in our life. And instead of going, man, okay, huh? oh, there's one step in the right direction, but I'm going, to, I'm going to the end of the road. No, we go, man, look what God did. I went a week and I didn't cuss. Man, I didn't smoke this week. I didn't drink this week. I didn't do whatever it was. And we get so focused on our little victory there. But listen, when our, when our, when our, when our enemy is weak, that's when we strike. We don't let them go and regroup. We don't give them the opportunity to go off and say, hey, you know what, we're going to prepare for another day and find another plan. Look for that weakness in your life. No, when they're weak, we need, to, we need to strike. And so what happens so many times because we do this, because we celebrate these short-term victories, God's saying, listen, the goal isn't just to give you a victory in the moment or over that specific sin. The whole goal is to get you to a place which is called holiness. Amen. Right? What does God tell us in 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16? But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. When you see the word conversation, it means the life that you live. The conversation of your mouth, but the conversation of your life, your testimony. Because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. That's what this thing's about. It's about us being holy. It's not just getting victory over a specific sin that we're dealing with in the moment. It's not just getting through uh, whatever, whatever struggle we're in at the moment. And as we talked about before, we talked about this on Sunday night. Listen, we, we, there's, a, there's a danger in us going, listen, if I can get my flesh to just conform for the short term, I can get to the hump that I need to. Right? I know if I can just, because right now I'm in the midst of a struggle, but if I can just get the, the flesh to surrender, because you know what the flesh wants to do? It wants to avoid pain. It wants to avoid adversity. And it will submit to get you over a hurdle. No doubt about it. But it's not submitted itself to God. And what will happen is if we're not careful, we will do things not for the purpose of God's glory. We'll do them for the sake that we just miss out on the pain. Why am I willing to seek God's face right now? Because you know what? I'm in a pickle. But once I get out of the pickle, whew, then I can relax a little bit. All this reading and all this study and all this praying, I can let up a little bit. Because you know what? The flesh will... It'll play into that. But what he's saying, listen, you know what? You need to surrender. Surrender to God. Get the victory through Him. The holiness is the goal. That's why the spiritual battle takes place that we're in every single day. Because God's calling us to holiness, and the world is trying to call us to be unholy. And listen, so if we go a week without falling to sin, we don't stop and celebrate. Yes, tell God thanks. Yes, be grateful for the moment, but don't lose your sight. Don't lose sight of what it is you're supposed to do. We cannot allow the influence of our, uh, to be caught in the moment and lose sight of what it is we're called to become. God has an expectation for us. He has a, a, a victorious life for us, a conquering life for us. And this, the problem is the struggle is the fact that we lose sight of, of the long term. And what happens is you and I are being held back or when we're trying to hold back these issues in our life, we're constraining them. We've got to remember it's through God's power. It's through surrendering to Him. It's not because of us. It's not because of some talent or ability or just the fact that we have a strong will. Because I'm telling you, if you're restraining sin in your life because of your will, eventually your will will fail. You'll do it for a while, but there'll come a day when you'll be weak and those enemies that you didn't deal with that have been waiting in the bush line, looking, they see you that day worn down and beaten. And you know what they're going to do? They're coming. So if we don't surrender them to God and allow Him to deal with them, listen, they will return. So we must deal with sin in every area of our life. Every area. 2 Corinthians 7.1 says this, Having therefore these promises, he's talking about an intimacy with God, 
Dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. Listen, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Perfecting holiness. So listen, so with the kings trapped and their numbers dwindling, Joshua tells his men to finish the job. Don't lose sight of why you're here, and we must do the exact same thing. Because in the spiritual fight that we're in, can I promise you that our enemy is going to use things like temptation, frustration, and isolation to get us. And if we allow these areas of our life, if we become weak, you know what? They will wreak havoc in our lives. And we'll be sitting back going, you know, how did, how did this happen? I just don't understand. Because we become lazy in our walk with God. We're like, hey, man, I got a victory here, so you know what? I'm going to celebrate that victory, and I'm going to take myself a little break. It's not the key to victory. We learn from Joshua, stay on task. We can allow wickedness to exist in the shadows or do what Joshua's doing and deal with it in the light. As he has isolated their authority and has chased down and destroyed the last enemies. And we look at now the results. Check this out. Lastly, we'll see that Joshua makes sure that their voices are silenced. Verse 20 says this, And it came to pass when Joshua and the children of Israel had made an end of slaying them with a very great slaughter till they were consumed, and the rest that which remained of them entered into fenced cities. And all the people returned to the camp to Joshua at Machedah in peace. None moved his tongue against any of the children of Israel. And so at this point, all of the Amorite combatants have been addressed. The kings are imprisoned in the, in the cave. And what we'll see is all the cities are going to hunker down. They're getting prepped and ready because you know what? The word's getting out about Joshua and the Israelites. This is a decisive victory. This is something unheard of. God extended the sunlight to bring victory. That's who we're facing. So they've gone back and they're, they're collecting themselves, they're protecting themselves, they're hiding in their cities. And Machedah, which is right there, right? This happened at Machedah. And what's happened is you don't see the Macadamians. Uh, you know, <laughs> I don't know what we call them, but that seems like a pretty good name. But none of the Macadamians came out to help them, you notice, right? Nobody comes out. There's no mention of them even showing up. So they witnessed firsthand what God was doing. And they literally, what we find is the fact that they are silenced through what they saw. The power of God working on God's, on behalf of God's people has silenced the voices of those men. All the soldiers that they killed, they've been silenced. The kings have been shut up in the cave. They've been silenced. And the people that were just there to witness the fight, guess what? It shuts their mouths as well. Because notice what it says in verse number 21. And all the people returned to the camp to Joshua at Machedah in peace. None moved his tongue against any of the children of Israel. Shut their mouths. Through the devastating power of God. Brought to bear through his faithful people doing what he commanded them to do. And can I tell you, southern Canaan is terrified. Every city is terrified. And what happens is they all went from being legitimate threats. Joshua saw them that way, and they were worried about them. Remember what he said? I've given them into your hands, Joshua. You need not fear. You need not fear. Because listen, they're no longer a threat to you. They're nothing more than a stepping stone in you attaining complete control of the promised land. For you see, the victory was promised 
way back before they even crossed the Jordan River. Let's jump back to Joshua chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Joshua's just taken the leadership role. Moses has just died. Joshua feels ill-equipped. He feels scared. He's worried. He's like, am I the man? Listen to this. Every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that have I given unto you, as I said unto Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, even unto the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and under the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your coasts. There shall not any man be able to stand before thee all the days of thy life. As I was Moses, I will be with thee. Notice this. I will not fail thee nor forsake thee. Whatever you face, you face it with me, Joshua. You walk faithful to me. And guess what? I will promise you my faithfulness. I am a man of my word and I will never break my word. Walk with me and I will be with you through it all. I will not fail thee nor forsake thee. Joshua and the Israelites had to learn to believe that. And it will be because of this decisive victory that happens right here, enabled through the miraculous hand of God, doing the impossible, that they've learned to trust this truth. And Canaan is going to fall in quick succession, one after another, after this victory. I mean, they just drop like flies because they learned a lesson. They learned to make sure that no threat, no matter how powerless it may appear, was was overlooked, while at the same time identifying and isolating the wicked influences that drive their enemies on the battlefield. And through doing that and the power of God, what did they do? They were shutting up the naysayers, right? Now, how about us, right? Let's make this personal. Are we remaining sober and vigilant as we look across the battlefield of our life? Are we every day checking and assessing where we stand? Are we looking for what's what's God's will? What's God's enemy? What's me? What's an influence of whatever's going on? Assess the battlefield. Look and pay attention. Have eyes to see. Are we scanning for every threat, no matter how small? Are we taking captive every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God? Are we robbing those wicked influences in our lives of their power by removing them from the throne of our hearts? And is is our life and our testimony, is it shutting the mouth of the naysayers? Is it? Or is it empowering them? Because listen, through the power of God working in our lives, it can. Those that sit back and go, you know what? I don't know about Christianity. And they watch you go through adversity and you because you surrender to God and because the forces that tell you to doubt and to have fear and to freak out and to cry go, you know what? I'm going to trust God. And people look at that and they go, how is that possible? But when we fail, you know what they do? See? See? Told you. Told you. The naysayers, man, they are going to look for every opportunity to come against our Father. They're looking for every opportunity. And unfortunately, we're the representatives. Ay, ay, ay. I'm sorry. <laughs> I know who I am. And listen, we're failed, we're fallen, we make mistakes. That's just who we are. And the thing is, but the more surrendered we are, the less mistakes we make. The more submitted we are, the more God shows up. The more selfless we are, the more the charity of God shows up in our life. But the more selfish we become, the more wickedness appears. So we have to, again, assess our hearts. Last week, we were reminded of the same God that fights for Joshua. It's the same God who's fighting for us. The Israelites have learned to believe it. And what we'll see in the days to come, victory will become a way of life for them.
It just becomes commonplace. And you know what? It should be for us as well. But how many of us constantly deal with defeat? Constantly struggle with feeling overwhelmed by circumstance. Not because we should. God's called and told us what we can do. Victory became a way of life for them, and it will be for us as well if we will simply surrender. Because let me tell you this. Once power, uh, once, uh, once, what, would, what once had power in our life, when it's made powerless by God's might, and when its influence and reach are destroyed, then its voice can no longer be heard. Listen, it's all about Him dealing with the issues of our heart and our life. It's not us. It's submission that will bring victory. And when they're no longer heard and they no longer have power, then we can claim victory. Not in us, but in God. We are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. Through Him. What a beautiful gift He's given. Victory is ours. The victory was won on the cross. Do you realize the battle is not for our souls? It's for their souls. And the devil would love to take people to hell every single day, man. He's doing all that he can to hide the truth. The Bible says that he's blinded the eyes of them who do not believe. That's why we're, our job is to be on the battlefield, not for our sakes, but for theirs. You have family members that are lost, man. They're looking at you. They want to talk about you at the family reunion when you do something stupid. So be cautious. Be surrendered. Pray before you go. Be a submitted child of God. You won't be perfect, but when you make a mistake, you know what? Own it. Go talk to that person when you make a mistake and say, you know what? I didn't handle myself the way that I should. And you know what God, God did? He convicted me. And you know what? I want to ask you to apologize. Would you, would you forgive me? Be real. Be honest. Be who God's called us to be. And guess what? We can live a victorious life in God. But if we lose track of that and we get selfish and we get worried about this world and what people think of us, listen, that's not what it's about. It's not about the reputation that we have. It's about the reputation that God has. We are ambassadors for Christ. An ambassador represents where they come from. We are an ambassador. We are children of God and we will act as ambassadors in a dark world. And we must be the light. We can claim victory in our Christian life. Emboldened. Listen, emboldened by who God is. But listen, those that oppose God can also be emboldened by the life that we live. So we can shut their mouths or we can give them topic of conversations. The difference is whether or not we will live in victory or defeat is based upon the fact that, listen, God is the answer. Surrender is the answer. Submission is the answer. His word is the answer. Light is the answer. We are surrounded with darkness. And if there's ever a time in our life we were going to shine, it's now. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for today. God, for the gift of your word. Father, for the work that you're doing in our individual lives. Lord, I know that... uh, I know who I am, and Lord, I'm sorry for the failure uh, that my life has been in so many ways, but God, I do pray that you'd help us as a body uh, to, to assess the battlefield, to be conscious of the threats, 
to, Lord, surrender them to you, to use your power, Father, to subdue them, to uh, isolate them, to shut off their power, to remove the, the things in our life off the thrones of our hearts that are not godly. Lord, that we would place you in a firm, uh, firm isolated spot as the king of our heart. Help us, Lord, to have our set our affections on things above, not on things of the earth. And Lord, we praise you for the victories that can be ours. We thank you for the fact that, God, you've already won the ultimate victory. And God, we pray for the souls of men in our community, in our families, in our, at our workplace. God, that you would break through the darkness. Use us as emissaries. Use us as lights in the darkness. With our heads bowed and with our eyes closed. Listen, if you're here today and you say, listen, I'm not exactly sure where I stand with God. Can I tell you? There are a lot of people that believe in God. It's great. That doesn't mean they're going to heaven. There's a lot of people that cry and have an emotional reaction to God. But can I say that doesn't mean they're saved. It is nothing more than surrender. Because the Bible says, Jesus said, he says, no man cometh to me, but the Father draw him. And when God draws us, there's a compulsion. A compulsion to God. And all we have to do is by faith, surrender to the truth. We repent of this world. We turn from this world and we choose Christ. If there's not been a time in your life when you've truly done that, I don't mean a religious experience that you had or a moment of brokenness where maybe you just felt sad. I'm talking about a true conversion where God came into your heart because you surrendered to Him. If that's you today and you need to receive Him, I'm going to give you that opportunity. If you're online watching this, you're watching it recorded, this is your opportunity to receive the greatest gift ever given, the first victory in the Christian life. With our heads bowed and with our eyes closed, if you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, like I said, it's not a, it's not a magic prayer or a, or a religious experience. It's nothing more than a surrendered heart calling out to Him. So with our heads bowed and eyes closed, if you want to repeat after me in your heart and mind, you can talk to God right now and receive Him. Repeat after me, Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. And God, I am so sorry for my sin. I believe that you love me, that you died for me, that you were buried in a borrowed tomb, and on the third day you were raised from the dead. God, I'm asking you right now, in the best way I know how, to come into my heart, to forgive me of my sins, and give me a home in heaven. Lord, thank you for saving me. I'll see you in heaven one day. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.